if you care about your investments and your personal finances and the protection that you're entitled to under the law, under the regulation that is intended to protect investors' interests, then we, need, we all need to do something about it. Money Mostly Canadian Podcast with your host, Freep Banerjee. Welcome back to Mostly Money. I'm your host, Preet Banerjee, and on the show today, I'll be speaking to Anita Anand, who is one of the leading experts in securities law in Canada. Anita's going to walk us through some of the big issues at play for investor protection in Canada. And as usual, before I introduce Anita, Thank you again to all the listeners who've left star ratings on iTunes. Special thanks this week to, and I have no idea how to pronounce all of these handles, so I'm going to do my best, Chuck Fan Resaw, who also wants Ben Rabideau back at least once a year to talk about housing, Eric Y. Lee, who has also been digging the interviews with the various robo-advisor CEOs, and Derek Sanford, who wants more frequent podcasts. Derek, I apologize in advance, but that's just not going to happen. Now, if you haven't done so yet, I really do appreciate you taking five seconds to leave a rating on iTunes. And if you want to take the additional time to write in a comment on top of that, I do read them all. Now, on to today's guest. Anita Anand is a professor of law at the University of Toronto. There, she holds the J.R. Kimber Chair in Investor Protection and Corporate Governance. She is also the Academic Director of the Center for the Legal Profession at U of T, a member of the Board of Governors at Massey College, a member of the Board of Trustees for the Canadian Business Law Journal, and a fellow in residence in corporate governance at the C.D. Howe Institute. She is also currently a special advisor to the Board of FAIR Canada, and FAIR stands for the Foundation for the Advancement of Investor Rights. Anita, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Now, before we get started, I know you haven't listened yet to an episode of my podcast. I'm deeply Sorry hurt by that. that. <laughs> um, but there is a format that I follow. And the first thing I want to do with people is I want to ask them a little bit about their background. How did you end up in the position that you're in today? Kind of from, you know, university, but, you know, just like two minutes, just to sort of give us the Coles notes. So, so what is your story? Well, my story goes back to grade five. Okay. When I used to line my stuffed animals up in chairs in our basement and pretend that I was teaching them <laughs> really how to read and write. And I knew that I wanted to do something in the teaching profession. But then my mother told me that I could be a doctor or a lawyer and teacher wasn't in there. Okay. And so I tried to mesh the two and right. became a law professor. Right. Okay. So this is the typical Indian family that you have to mm -hmm. be a doctor, lawyer, engineer. Yes. Okay. Exactly. That's okay. My so mother. that was grade five. And so they kind of steered you towards law, I guess. Mm -hmm. When I decided not to do medicine. Right. Of course. <laughs> okay. So where did you go to uh, school for your undergrad? Queens, Queens University. University. And I, so I was living in Nova Scotia at the time. So that was quite a hike yeah. to move to Kingston from rural Nova Scotia. Right. And then I went to do my first law degree at Oxford. Of course. After that. And then I came back to Dalhousie and U of T before starting my articles. And, and what drew you to securities law? 
It's so funny because I articled at a firm that specialized in corporate and securities law, but I didn't know really what securities were, Mm -hmm. what securities law was when I started articling at Tories in Toronto. Mm -hmm. And I remember asking some very basic questions Right. (laughs) at the time. The learning curve was very steep, vertical, in fact. (laughs) And uh, ultimately, when I tell my students this story of how you know, you can become a securities lawyer too. (laughs) (laughs) They find it pretty funny. Right. Okay. So here, before we get into the meat of the topic, I have to ask, so, you know, you're one of the foremost thinkers when it comes to securities law and uh, you're, you're widely referenced and sought out as an expert. Do you work with a financial advisor? Definitely not. Oh, okay. Interesting. Because I was going to say, if if financial advisor works with you, I can only imagine what goes through their head when, you know, they get a phone call and they're like, uh, you know what? I need to have a lawyer present before yeah. I have this conversation. So my husband, John, used to be a day trader. Oh, so interesting. So I, I entrust him with our money. But recently he's, uh, he's mentioned that he would like to unload this responsibility onto an investment advisor. And I've said, no, (laughs) you're going to have to keep doing it. (laughs) Right. Oh, interesting. Okay. We're going to have to circle back to that. That's very interesting. Okay. So let's, let's start, uh, because this podcast is part education for the listeners on the lay of the land of securities regulation in Canada, which will lead us into our conversation about some of the big issues that are happening right now. Right. So can you give us the lay of the land with securities regulation Canada? Like what's the general framework for how it works? It's very complicated, I will say that, and that's because we have many provincial jurisdictions, Mm -hmm. so 13 different securities regulators in Canada because it's run provincially, not federally. Right. So our banking regulator is run federally, Mm -hmm. and so we have one banking regulator. Right. So, for all financial institutions. Why the dual standard? Why why wouldn't they say, well, it, if it works on a national level for banking, why not for securities? Great question, but it boils <laughs> down to our constitution. Okay. And the way in which the Supreme Court of Canada has interpreted our constitution. And the constitution provides that provinces will have jurisdiction over property and civil rights. Okay. And the court has interpreted that phrase in our constitution as relating to securities and therefore provinces have jurisdiction constitutionally over securities trading property. Do I not own the savings in my bank account? Is that not property in a sense? Well, banking (laughs) was a separate section in the constitution Ah. under the federal powers. And so that's why the federal government has control over that sector. But I'm making it out as though it's very clear. (laughs) And I'm also making it out that I agree with all of this. Um, But neither is the case. Uh, It is not uh, completely clear, if you go back to the precise wording of the Constitution, that the provinces should have sole jurisdiction. Mm -hmm. There is a section in the federal list of jurisdictional areas called trade and commerce. And so the argument has been made that the federal government should have jurisdiction over securities markets because they have the constitutional jurisdiction over trade and commerce. So that has been one of the nubs of the issues relating to constitutionality in this area. Okay. And let's just go over who some of the regulators are because 
Uh, we've talked a little bit about um, how the securities regulators are divvied up across the provinces and territories. What is OSFI, uh, OBSI, Fisco? Who are all these different regulators that a financial consumer is being regulated by? Probably unbeknownst to them. Okay. So the main regulator of capital markets are the individual securities regulators in each province. So in Ontario, the Ontario Securities Regulator, in BC, the BC uh, Securities Commission, so Ontario Securities Commission, OSC. Uh, BC Securities Commission, Alberta Securities Commission, and so on. You get the idea. Yeah. <laughs> so each province has one of those. And then OSFI is the Office for the Superintendent of Financial Institutions. That is a federal regulator, and that is for banks and other financial institutions. Okay. Okay. And then we have um, the FISCO that it deals with insurance and those types of products. So and that's Ontario specifically, Ontario right? Ontario specifically, yes. And then we also have individual uh, market regulators like IROC mm-hmm. um, and IROC and the MFDA. So they do uh, the individual regulation relating to investment advisors and other intermediary, intermediaries. And, and they're national in scope. Well, that is the funny thing, right? <laughs> we don't have a national securities regulator, but we have individual areas of our markets being regulated by national self-regulatory organizations like the Mutual Fund Dealers Association and IROC. Right. Yeah. So MFDA stands for the Mutual Fund Dealers Association and IROC is the Investment Industry Regulatory Organization of Canada. This industry has so many acronyms, it's not even funny. <laughs> but IROC is a funny one, right? Yeah. <laughs> Students love that. I'll bet. I rock. <laughs> okay. Um, what is the passport system and why doesn't Ontario participate in it? Okay. So when provinces and capital market participants, especially companies, started to get frustrated because we have 13 separate securities regulators, they put their heads together and said, well, what can we do to make it better? And the passport system of regulation essentially allows different jurisdictions, provincial jurisdictions, to rely on the decision-making in another jurisdiction. So if I'm a company and I want to issue shares in British Columbia, but my head office is in Alberta, I can get clearance from the Alberta Securities Commission and the BC Securities Commission will respect that decision. Your follow-up question was, well, what about Ontario? Right. Well, Ontario decided not to participate in this passport system of regulation. So all the other provinces got together and said, look, if Ontario gives its permission for a prospectus or an offering or distribution of shares to occur, we're going to respect it. So Ontario is in the system, the passport system by default. Right. Why didn't Ontario want to go in there formally, though? Because Ontario has been historically holding out for a national securities regulator to be formed. And Ontario said, look, if we join Passport, the chances of a national regulator being formed are much less. And so we are going to opt out. But it didn't really make a difference. Stay with us. We'll be right back. 
You hear a lot about supply chains these days, because if the past couple years have taught us anything, it's that an efficient, well-managed supply chain is absolutely critical to keeping businesses successful and consumers happy. I'm Will Haywood, and I host a podcast called All Business, No Boundaries, where we talk about supply chains, how they work, what happens when they don't, and the innovations that are redefining what's possible in the world of logistics. Join me for insightful interviews with thought leaders and industry experts. We discuss how optimizing supply chains can break down the barriers that are holding businesses back. That's All Business, No Boundaries by DHL Supply Chain. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, so let's follow up with this theme. Um, It's often said that Canada is the only G7 country that does not have a national securities regulator. A lot of people have been asking, you know, based on the framework that exists, I don't know how you can make sense of it all. Like there's some things that are nationally governed, some things that are provincially. Why not just have a national securities regulator? As you mentioned yourself, IROC and MFDA are national in scope. So what has been the main reason why there is no national securities regulator in Canada? Okay, just to back up, not just G7 country, the only country with a developed securities market that does not have a national regulator. Right. We used to be on par with Bosnia. Okay. And then Bosnia got its act together. So Bosnia is ahead of us when it comes to securities <laughs> yes. regulation. Okay. So that's where things stand. It's pretty bad, right? Uh, and the reason, if I had to boil it down, doesn't relate to securities per se at all. Right. Doesn't relate to capital markets participants at all. Mm-hmm. It's political. Quebec has said they will never join a national regulator model. Alberta has been basically on that plane also saying that they are not interested in developing a national model. And the current model on the table, which we'll talk about, is also not supported by um, by either of those jurisdictions. Right. Okay. So the model that is on the table right now is what's known as the CCMR. Yeah. So can you break that down and and what does that encompass? Because this is not exactly a national securities regulator, but it's a couple of different provinces coming together. uh, And I think one territory. So, so what is the CCMR? What does that stand for? And what is it? The Cooperative Capital Markets Regulator. And I have to back up before I finish answering that question, because it came into being over a number of months, if not years, uh, and it has not been implemented in Canada yet. It's just a proposal. But it all started, the discussions to form CCMR, after the securities reference case at the end of 2011. sitting around my dining room table, waiting for the Supreme Court of Canada to opine on whether securities regulation was national or provincial. I assumed that the it was going to be nine judges to none in favor of the feds, and it was nine judges to none in favor of the provinces at the end of 2011, December 2011. And after that, the federal government was basically told by the Supreme Court of Canada that it does not have constitutional jurisdiction over the day-to-day trading of securities and the regulation of that market, those markets. And so the Supreme Court of Canada did say that the federal government has jurisdiction over systemic risk, and we can talk about that in a bit, and, and data collection. But on the basic 
issues that you and I are talking about today, securities regulation, the Supreme Court of Canada said it's the provinces. And so the federal government, which has put a number of proposals on the table, certainly prior to 2011, for there to be federal regulation of securities, then had the kind of air popping, the balloon popped and the air coming out of its balloon. Right. There's no, no way now that they were going to have that jurisdiction based on their arguments and based on the decision of the Supreme Court. And so the CCMR has developed out of the fact that the provinces have jurisdiction in this area and they developed this cooperative model mm -hmm. to work together to form what is... Uh, a consolidation of provincial jurisdictions to regulate securities markets in and, Canada. And the participants so far, I believe, are BC, Saskatchewan, Ontario, Yukon, New Brunswick, and PEI? Exactly. Wow. I can't Very believe I remember good. that off the top of my head. <laughs> so that you know, leaves out some significant jurisdictions, Alberta and Quebec, right? Right. If you were to look at the four major jurisdictions in Canada, it's BC, Alberta, Ontario, and Quebec. Right. So we're really batting two for four there. And and also, when you, when you look at some of the, the direction that, say, for example, BC is going with securities regulation versus the OSE in Ontario, they don't really see eye to eye on some pretty important issues. They don't now. But at the time when the CCMR was first introduced um, back in 2013, they were very much uh, in sync with each other mm -hmm. about wanting to cooperate and wanting to get something off the ground. And that was revolutionary because BC had not always been on side with the formation of something nationally. Right. Okay, so let's let's talk about uh, a white paper that you produced yes. for Fair Canada, mm -hmm. and it has to do with this cooperative capital markets regulator. And what was the the general nature of that paper before we go into it, sort of point by point? Well, what uh, I was asked to do is to examine the CCMR and to opine on the extent to which it was in investors' interests. Mm -hmm. And after uh, a lot of research, I concluded that in both its governance structure and substance, the CCMR is not in the interests of investors for a number of reasons, which I can go into if you want. Sure. So, but, but your overall, overall opinion, opinion is that this is a step backwards. And it's quite amazing to me that I've reached this conclusion, right? So if you look at my writing over the last 15 years, it has all been in favor of some form of national securities regulation where you would have cooperation between the federal government and the provinces. And now, after having written this white paper and done this research, I'm concluding that the current model, the CCMR, is actually not in investors' interest and should not go forward without amendments that would be more advantageous for investors. So before we talk about the likelihood of the train stopping, right? Yeah, <laughs> let's talk about some of these these issues that you've sure. highlighted in your white paper, right? Um, so currently, um, the largest regulator in Canada is the Ontario Securities Commission, right? And they have a number of initiatives that are very much in favor of uh, promoting the voice of the investor. And one such initiative is the Investor Advisory Panel. 
So can you explain to us what the role of that panel is and whether or not that will exist under the CCMR? Okay, so great question. You're exactly right. The OSC is the regulator of Canada's deepest capital markets. But British Columbia would say that they regulate more issuers. Okay. Uh, So there's that little argument (laughs) there. Um, The Investor Advisory Panel is actually near and dear to my heart. I was its inaugural chair back in 2010. And the mandate of the panel is to comment in writing on OSC uh, policies and rulemaking initiatives. And so being the first investor advisory panel back in 2010, that's exactly what we did. We, we put out a number of different written submissions relating to OSC policymaking. We also talked to staff of the commission about what investors' interests would be on any given policy issue that mm-hmm. was under discussion. And so it was a very productive engaged and engaged exercise to always be highlighting what the investors' concerns would be. And I have to say that it's not just my, uh, you know, sympathy towards investors' interests that makes me think that investor advisory panels are good ideas. The mandate of the securities regulator is to protect investors and maintain market efficiency. So from a purely legal standpoint, I'm looking at the investor advisory panel and saying that is an initiative that is in fulfillment of the mandate of the OSC, right? It it indicates that they are serious about fulfilling their legal mandate to protect investors. And that is why I think it's a good thing, in addition to my being sympathetic to the initiative. Right. And so for the CCMR, is this not part of their mandate to... um Protect investors? Yes. So the CCMR has a threefold mandate, protect investors, maintain market efficiency, and um, manage systemic risk. Mm-hmm. And so that third element on systemic risk is new after the securities reference decision. Right. Um, but the first two elements are very similar to the mandates in other provincial jurisdictions. And so, yes, protecting investors is ultimately central to the mandate of the CCMR, just the way it is in provincial jurisdictions. And yet they will not have an investor advisory panel, at least not to start with? They will not as it currently stands. And is it like, is it possible that they will? Yes, it is. I mean, the OSC's investor advisory panel is not a creature of statute. Mm -hmm. It was created um, by the OSC uh, in discussions with the province on a recommendation from Fair Canada, in fact. Uh Um, So, there's always a possibility that the CCMR structure could give birth to an investor advisory panel. But if I'm an investor advocate or an investor um, in Ontario's or any other capital markets, and I'm looking at two options, one where there is an investor advisory panel and one where there is not, I'm more partial to one where there's already one established, of course, yeah. especially in the absence of any uh indication or statements that one would be created under the CCMR, which we have not heard. Okay. All right. So there's currently an investor advisory panel with the OSC, uh, but the CCMR, which um, would 
take over from the OSC as well as BC and, and the other regulators that we mentioned. On July 1st, 2018. That's the current date. That's the current it's date. It's very soon. But chances are that's not going to happen. <laughs> the chances are that's going to be pushed back again. Right. <laughs> um, okay. So no investor advisory panel, at least to start with. Um, so definitely a step back on that front. Now, what about the makeup of the board of the CCMR? Can I just go back and just finish off the thought on oh, the yes, investor please. advisory panel yeah. and the dates and the formation of the sure. the CCMR? So it's supposed to be 2018, July 1, as I said, but we re- really have not heard one thing from Prime Minister Trudeau on whether a CCMR is going to be created. It was not in the budget. Right. Uh, Finance Minister Morneau has said that there has said something small at a press conference in Halifax a couple of years ago. (laughs) So let me say that this doesn't seem like it's a priority for the federal government. Right. And so while we're talking about July 1, 2018, and we're talking about, well, that would probably be pushed back, right? It may not happen at all. Right. We have not heard a lot of kind of really good signs that it's chugging along and it's going to happen and everything's working in a very uh, easy way. Right. So um, while it may not actually happen, certainly won't happen on schedule. I think that's almost guaranteed at this point. It's not going to happen on schedule. You're right. You're right. They have lined up people that they want on the commission, right, on the board. So what, what are your comments as to the makeup of that board as it contrast to, for example, the existence or the composition of the board at the OSC right now? I'm using the OSC as sort of the the main point of comparison, but for a specific reason. So can you contrast the the makeup of the board of the CCMR to the OSC? So this is a difficult question. We're talking about at the OSC level, commissioners that are appointed from a variety of stakeholder groups to comprise what is a board of directors whom we call commissioners. Mm -hmm. Then under the new regulator, which is called the Capital Markets Regulatory Authority or CMRA, um, the proposed uh, board of directors would be kind of under a council of ministers, but it would be in effect running the organization. Um, And it was appointed in 2016, comprised of 14 individuals, And there is some diversity on the board, as you can imagine, but it's geographical diversity, primarily representing various regions across the country. And this goes to the political nature of the exercise that I was referring to earlier. This is highly political because each province wants to have a say in how this regulator is going to play out. What is it going to look like? And so geographical diversity is really important here. There's also representation from industry listed companies, exchanges, and banks, and gender, which right. is a priority for the federal government and provincial governments also, right. and securities commissions. But where we do not see diversity is in terms of uh, investor representation on the board of directors of the CMRA. Okay. And that is where I think there is a, a, a big issue. We had uh, Howard Wetston, who was a board member of the 14 individuals, but he has gone to the Senate and had to resign his position on the board, and he has not yet been replaced. So my hope is that he's going to be replaced by uh, some 
investor representative. And by investor representative, because you might have a question about that, like who who are we calling investor representatives right. here? Um, individuals who have had an experience and background representing investors' interests, speaking on behalf of investors in Canada. It's not sufficient to simply say, well, I'm an individual investor. I invest money in the stock market. Therefore, I'm representing investors' interests. Right. Um, that's that's not really what I have in mind in the white paper. And it's not really what Fair Canada has in mind in commissioning the white paper. Yeah, and I think, you know, when it comes to the existence of Fair Canada and its raison d'etre, it is because, yes, there are a lot of uh, investors, um, sophisticated or not, who are managing their own investments, but they don't really know the nuance of securities law, which is, I mean, you really need to roll your sleeves up and get into some of these these issues to have an understanding as to what is being talked about and what is being argued, because it is not simple stuff like asset allocation and what are the right You're things right. to do with your investments. You're right. And I have found teaching this area of the law very gratifying, <coughs> um, even over and above practicing in this area, because it allows me to fully understand what the statute is saying. But an average investor does not understand and, and couldn't possibly understand mm -hmm. the complexities of this area of law. Right. And so at a governance level, and I am an expert in corporate governance, at a governance level, we need to make sure that the constituency that we are serving is able to act in their interests. And remember right. what I said, the constituency he here under the legal mandate to protect investors is the investor community itself. Mm-hmm. So if you had sort of a wish list of things that you would want fulfilled, you would want to have investor representation on the makeup of the board of CCMR. And and uh, I think there's still time for that to occur. Okay. I, I think that we could see a replacement for Howard Weston mm -hmm. with an investor-focused representative. Mm -hmm. um, there's no... Can I nominate you? <laughs> Can I nominate you? <laughs> uh, you have to answer first. <laughs> Maybe we'll do it together. <laughs> um, so the point being that there's time for changes because we're not looking at a drop dead date for the implementation of this thing. Right. Okay. Uh, next issue is, uh, I need some background information, but what is the regulatory policy forum? So... This is complicated without me being able to show you a chart. Right, yes. The chart would make everything so much <laughs> easier here. But there are two kind of components, main components of the new regulator. Mm -hmm. One would be in charge of policymaking, and one would be in charge of adjudication. So like enforcement of those enforcement, policies. Enforcement, yeah. right. And so the regulatory policy forum is a forum where individuals from each of those two spheres can come together and discuss key policy issues right? so that the adjudicators have some knowledge of what the policymakers are doing on a very general or policy-based level right. and vice versa. Right. And so in a previous iteration of this model, pre-securities reference, there was an investor advisory panel contemplated and an, a representative from the panel would sit in the regulatory policy forum. Right. Now we have the policy forum in this iteration of the model. We have the forum, 
but we don't have the investor advisory panel and therefore we do not have a representative from that panel on the forum. Right. So the lack of investor representation is kind of doubly negative here Mm -hmm. because not only do you not have an investor advisory panel, Mm -hmm. not only do you have uh, a lack currently of uh, a real investor representative voice Mm -hmm. on the board, Mm -hmm. you also don't have someone, you know, who is rolling up their sleeves and saying, you know, here is what you need to consider as part of this uh, regulatory policy Mm -hmm. forum. Mm -hmm. Okay, so we've got a lot of strikes so far, but there's more. (laughs) (laughs) Now, another thing that the OSC has is what's known as the Office of the Investor. Right. They change it to Investor Office. Oh, they change to Investor (laughs) Office? Okay. Shorter. One word shorter. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) So can you explain what the Investor Office is and how is that different from the IAP, the Investor Advisory Panel? Right, so that's just uh, a, a branch or an area of the commission where investor-focused initiatives are housed. Mm -hmm. So you have uh, the investor advisory panel being run out of that office. You have the seniors expert advisory committee. Um, You have the IOSCO committee. That's the International Organization of Securities Commission's Committee on Retail Investments. So those, all those investor-focused initiatives are kind of housed or run out of that umbrella branch of the commission called the investor office. So these sound like pretty important issues. Yes. And is this going to continue on with the CCMR? There's no contemplated investor (laughs) office at the current time, but it's possible. You know, we do have a CEO of the, or chief regulator who has been appointed of of the CMRA, Mm -hmm. Kevin Cowan. Right. And so it's possible that he will say, we're going to form an investor office. We're going to form an investor advisory panel, but we haven't heard that yet. Okay. And so my analysis is that at the current time, the proposed model is not as beneficial to investors as the current model of securities regulation in the OSC. Right. Okay. So that's another issue. And those are all what I call structural. That's the way in which the organization is set up. Mm-hmm. Right. They are that they're governance issues. Right. So we haven't really talked about substantive legal issues now, but I expect that you're going to raise some of those with me. Indeed. My next question (laughs) is around some of these substantive issues. So a lot of talk has been about a best interest standard in Canada. So much talk. So much talk. So many years, not a lot of action. (laughs) Yeah, in fact, wasn't this one of the things that Gloria Stromberg had in her 1995 report? 1995. Right, and it was on the table again in the early 2000s in Ontario. And so this best interest standard is essentially, uh, it would be a requirement that financial advisors act in the best interest of their clients. A lot of investors probably think when they sit across the table from a financial advisor, that is currently the standard that they would be held to. But that is not true. And so a lot of people have been talking about this. The Ontario Securities Commission has taken, I would say, the lead on this the this issue and have expressed an interest to push forward with this. And all the other provincial and territorial regulators have not. Well, and I just want to say, this is unprecedented that we have the Ontario Securities Commission being out there and leading the way on this issue after so many years of inactivity. Right. And so it's something to take note of. Yeah, they and should be And it's not something to throw away lightly. So I, I expect your next question was going to be, what do we see under CCMR? And there is no statutory best interest duty contemplated at all 
in the legislation underpinning this new proposed regime. And so again, we're looking at the situation saying, what do we got in Ontario and what might we have under CCMR? And it's not looking good under the latter. Right. And again, CCMR, the other constituents uh, or stakeholders there from the other provinces and territories are really not on board. So the chances are that if the CCMR gets enacted, that the best interest standard at least for now, for this round, is dead. Is that correct? Well, yeah, and I'll just fill you in, fill you in on what happened over the last week or so. Um, all the provinces under the CSA, the Canadian Securities Administrators, got together and they put out a concept paper on best interests. Right. And last week, all jurisdictions except New Brunswick and Ontario said they were not moving ahead with this initiative at the current time. Now, there's some jurisdictions are going to be kind of standing back and seeing what happens. But notably, British Columbia has said, British Columbia being one of the founding members of the proposed model, has said that it is not moving ahead with the best interest standard. And so you are exactly right, that if it doesn't come into being now, it is very unlikely, in my view, of, you know, that it will come into being once the regulator is formed. Right. And so if one of the uh, main mandates is protecting and uh, standing up on behalf of the investor. How does this make any sense? The arguments that I've heard relate to the fact that there is already some regulation that governs the conduct of investment advisors and that regulation is sufficient. Mm -hmm. But my response is, that those requirements, those suitability requirements and know your client, I'm sure they've come up in other podcasts, Many a time. right? <laughs> <laughs> those are insufficient to protect the interests of investors uh, because they don't contain an overarching duty to always act in the best interests of the client, mm-hmm. to always make sure that the client's interest is first. And that's why I say to John, my husband, you're, you're <laughs> investing our money right? until we get a best interest standard. Because you know that. Because I know the possibility <laughs> is there that right. there is no overarching legal duty. Okay. So this is frustrating. So the best interest standard likely going to die. Um, the next issue has to do with the banning of embedded commissions. So is this the same story? It's part of the same story, mm-hmm. right? Embedded commissions um, have been under examination by the CSA, and they put out a consultation paper which stated that embedded commissions encouraged the suboptimal behavior of fund market participants, Mm -hmm. including managers, dealers, representatives, fund investors, et cetera. And they raise problems with embedded commissions. And so again, the CSA is examining these conflicts of interest that arise from a practical perspective in the relationship between an investment advisor and a client. What's going to happen to the embedded commission initiative when and if we move to the CCMR model. Mm-hmm. It's not on the table. There's nothing in the legislation relating to embedded commissions. So again, my analysis is that if we don't see it in the proposed model, we should stick with what we got. And now Ormana Pascuto, the chair of the board of Fair Canada, often says, 
you know, uses a hockey analogy. He says, you know, we have these rookies on the Toronto Maple Leafs, um, Austin Matthews, etc. Why would we trade away some great players now for some future consideration? Right. And that's Armano's <laughs> repeated metaphor. But it's useful, right? It's, right. It makes the point that in a Canadian context, <laughs> that yeah. what we really have is a bird in the hand. And you don't trade away your bird in the hand for two in the bush. Right. Okay, the last aspect of um, the CCMR that I want to talk about is the um, lack of a whistleblower program. Right. And so the OEC, again, has kind of paved the way, said, hey, you know, we're, we're, we're doing great things here. Mm-hmm. We're going to put together this, this whistleblower program right. with compensation. Mm-hmm. And is that also going to disappear under the CCMR? There is some uh, whistleblowing protections, but what there isn't in the CMR is a financial reward mm-hmm. for whistleblowers who come forward. Right, which is a, a, a big deal. If you're thinking about blowing the whistle. You, you need know. an incentive. Yeah. <laughs> based on rational market behavior. I It'd know you're nice a behavioral people... economist, but we do have to recognize <laughs> incentives matter. Right. Right, and especially in this area where you could stand to lose your job. Yeah. Right, and so you're trying to cover your bases. I want to help out here with law enforcement. I want to give information, but what a, what am I going to have to protect myself? Right, because if you put your your neck out, mm-hmm. and you know maybe uh, maybe the the person that you're blowing the whistle on or a corporation, maybe nothing actually ends up happening, where it takes years and years and decades. What do you do in the meantime? Because you're effectively blacklisted. So the OSC's uh, whistleblowing program is 15% of any recovery amount up to a ceiling of 1.5 million and no awards for lower than 1 million. Okay. Okay. I have argued that that's not high enough. Yeah. Especially given the the amount of money the OSC has coming in from settlements. Right. Like you've seen those no contest settlements with the big banks. Yeah. Right. We're talking millions of dollars, right? Whistleblowers really need to be incentivized to come right. forward. It's, it's fundamental. Having said that, it is a is very important aspect to a regulatory regime to have a whistleblowing program at all. And so I applaud the OSC for doing that. Right. And I especially applaud the OSC when I see in the CCMR that there is no financial rewards in the proposed model. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's effectively saying there is no real whistleblowing program in the CCMR. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay. So, so here's my, my overall question. Although I think we've, uh, effectively answered it many times during Mm -hmm. the course of this conversation. Right. (laughs) Is the CCMR initiative good or bad for investor protection in Canada? Well, as you can imagine, I don't think it's, it's beneficial for investors at the current time. I'm hopeful that there will be changes to the proposed model before it goes final. As you, as I said, there's some question about whether it will actually come into being. Right. But I could not support this regime, this proposed regime, on the basis of what's in the current governance structure and substantive law without further changes on all of these issues we've talked about right. on governance and on substance. Right. So makeup of the board, um, representation of uh, the investor voice. Investor advisory panel. The investor office. office. Of the investor. Yes, all that. And also the issues that are not being contemplated, best interest standard. Embedded commissions. Of embedded commissions. And there are a number of other issues that I did not include in the white paper that continue to 
um, need to be examined, right. like the uh, ombudsman for banking uh, and s- services. Right. Right. The whole idea of there not being a mandatory dispute settlement mm-hmm. in that area uh, is problematic because that also leaves investors without um, without compensation at the end of the day, or at least compensation of the amount that they actually deserve relative to their losses. So the next question then is, what do we do about it? So Mm -hmm. what can listeners of this podcast, and I talked to you before the podcast, there's about 95% of listeners are Canadian. There's about 10 to 11,000 listeners. Um, So a lot of listeners in Canada, what can we do to maybe see some of these changes put in in place before the CCMR gets enacted? Do we contact our MPs? Do we contact MPPs? What do we do and how do we get our voices heard? It's a great, heard? great question. Right? We can't sit here and complain right. without having an idea about what we should do about these issues. Mm-hmm. And at the end of the day, I think writing to your MP is a very good idea. Uh, I think we have to speak out and we have to speak out as a group. Now, one of the problems that has continually plagued retail investors is the lack of a unified voice. Right. And we don't have that in the way that other lobby groups have uh, in, in this country and especially in the United States. And so you should be looking to the various investor organizations that are out there to, that can speak on your behalf also. Uh, Fair Canada is one. CARP is another. Um, the PIAC is mm-hmm. another. And SEPA is another. And those are all acronyms that I can I can. I'll put them in the show you. notes. Yeah, why don't you the put them notes. in the show yeah. notes? <laughs> Otherwise, we'll be here for another half an hour. Right. Yeah, my life is acronyms <laughs> being in this business. But all that to say is that this reminds me of what Barack Obama said when he was leaving office. Don't sit there and do nothing. Get up and get involved. If you care about these issues and you care about your country, get up and get involved. Well, if you care about your investments and your personal finances and the protection that you're entitled to under the law, under the regulation that is intended to protect investors' interests, then we need, we all need to do something about it. Very well said. I think that is a perfect note to end on. And I really do hope that people will take that advice to heart and contact your MP. Um, Look at organizations that you can support that will help further your voice because it is tough to articulate the issues that you may not be up to speed on. It is very difficult, uh, but there are organizations out there. Maybe you can include the email addresses and you can put my email address too. If you yeah, want. yeah, no, that'd be great. That'd be great. So yeah, so take a look at the show notes. Um, there'll be some links uh, so you can visit and um, we should maybe think about uh, crafting like a, a boilerplate letter that people can use and just sort of forward that on to their, yeah, to their local MP mm-hmm. um, just to make sure that we get the attention that it deserves. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, now, normally what happens at the end of a podcast is all my guests have a few minutes to give themselves a commercial um, or any final thoughts that they want to share. I think you've already given your final thoughts. I don't think you have anything to sell. I so. don't sell, no. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't even want to recruit people to U of T or something? No. I'm <laughs> just, just happy to be here. Thanks so much Excellent. for having me. Thank you so much for being a guest. Really appreciate it. No problem. 
All right. And to my listeners, uh, don't forget to leave a rating and comment on iTunes as well, in addition to sending a letter to your MP and uh, donating to organizations that are arguing on your behalf. Uh, those ratings on iTunes help me to get top-notch guests on the podcast like Anita. That is it for this week. We will see you next time.